So good morning and welcome. Uh, my name is Dr. Blake Conley, and my pronouns are he, him, and his. Uh, in addition to being a senior AP English and British literature instructor at Jinx High School down the road, I also currently serve as the junior warden of the vestry here at Christ Church. So on behalf of our community of faith, we welcome you once again to this conference and thank you all for being here. Though I am trained in uh, British Romanticism, uh, a group that holds much more in common than one would think with Flannery O'Connor, but that conversation is for another day, I have taught the wit and wisdom, not to mention the genius writing style and storytelling of Flannery O'Connor for more than a decade to my AP Lit kiddos after falling in love with her stories in undergrad. Today, I will be presenting a talk uh, entitled, Are There Really Any Good Country People? Concepts of Sin and Grace in Flannery O'Connor. It is my belief that quality literature is essential for theological and spiritual development, and I reject the notion of the strict dichotomy of the sacred and secular that some people place upon art, especially literature and film. I would be happy to address or entertain any questions or comments at the end of my talk, and since Father Everett told me I had to do this twice, we've got plenty of time for questions and comments, so... Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing this breakout. And without further ado, are there really any good country people? Sin and Grace and Flannery O'Connor. One of my favorite American poets, Elizabeth Bishop, and a contemporary of hers once described Flannery O'Connor's work as clear, hard, vivid, and full of bits of description, phrases, and an odd insight that contains more real poetry than a dozen books of poems. And while Bishop was speaking specifically about her writing style, the same could be applied to the person and the theology of Flannery O'Connor. She was above all poetic in the deepest sense of that term. Poetry can often be difficult for my high school AP Lit students to wrap their minds around because it can be inherently paradoxical. Not necessarily contradictory, though it can be that as well, but quality poetry is full of paradox, a difficult concept for teenage aspiring scholars, and in all honesty, most of us humans, who long for simplicity and mathematical exactitude. Because paradox lies beyond the realm of dry historical factuality and within the realm of poetry, just like the messy reality of our shared human experience. And then I am by no means an Americanist or even an O'Connor scholar. As I read and reread about O'Connor for this talk, especially my favorite short story, Good Country People, I kept coming to these ideas and landed upon this notion. Flannery O'Connor, at her essence, in her writing, is a poetic paradox, which will eventually bring us to, hear, to her paradoxical theology and her view of sin and grace. Like I said, after teaching Flannery O'Connery for more than a decade, she always continues to be surprising and engaging and uniquely prescient. She is able to capture the paradoxical wonder of the nature of the human experience, both in its most beautiful and grotesque. And once again, with this pair of seemingly opposites, we arrive back at the concept of paradox. Flannery O'Connor was described by her good friend, and the editor of the famous compilation of her writings and her letters entitled The Habit of Being, Sally Fitzgerald, as calm, slow, funny, courteous, both modest and very sure of herself, 
intense, sharply penetrating, devout but not pietistic, downright occasionally fierce, and honest in a way that restores honor to the word. She was a bit of a mashup, as kids would say these days. And for those of you wondering what that is, I can help since I spend my day teaching literature and poetry to reluctant teenagers. A mashup made most famous in my mind by the critically acclaimed and beloved TV show Glee is when two supposedly unconnected or unrelated songs or ideas are put together in a way that makes paradoxical sense. Therefore, Flannery O'Connor, in pop culture terms, is a mashup. She was an amalgamation of paradoxical ideas that somehow worked in her life and writing. She was a devout Catholic who wrote exclusively about the fundamentalist South. She was at once both an insider and an outsider in almost every context of her life. She was, quote, only a storyteller, unquote, as she described herself once in a letter, and not a theologian. But she embodies more poetry in her writing and theology in her works than most poets or theologians I have read and studied, which makes her all the more intriguing and human to me. As Robert Ellsberg says in his work on O'Connor, in his Modern Spiritual Masters series, which she herself would have been shocked to be included in, so long as one does not limit theology to a genre or field of study systematically concerned with arguments or conceptualizations, one can call O'Connor a theologian. Theology is what she does. And I would go further to say that one should call her a theologian and one of the finest the United States has ever produced. Even her younger, more brazen graduate school self conceded in a recently published diary entry that her writing, she hoped, was fueled and infused by Christianity. She said, please let Christian principles permeate my writing, and please let there be enough of my writing published for Christian principles to permeate. We can hear the pleading in her voice of a young, devout Christian and aspiring writer wanting to be authentically both. The paradox of not wanting to sell out as an artist, or for that matter as a Christian, but yet knowing that one story has a resonance that needs to be heard widely, weighed on O'Connor. By her own admission, much later in life, not only artistry but simply existing in an authentic way could be taxing. Barring from the French philosopher Jacques Martin, who consequently follows after one of O'Connor's intellectual and spiritual heroes, St. Thomas Aquinas, she views the importance of habits as a virtue with art being the chief amongst them, not merely a gift bestowed on some. Based upon Martin's understanding, art is a virtue of the practical intellect. And combining this notion with O'Connor striving after this habit of art, Fitzgerald qualifies O'Connor's writing as works that delve into this habit of being. That is, an excellence not only of action, but of interior disposition and activity that increasingly reflects the object, the being which specified it, and was itself reflected in all that she did and said. This reflection of what it meant to be authentically a Christian and authentically a writer can be summed up by this paradoxical understanding of the habit of being. And just like the impossible task of disengaging aspects of the mystery of a paradoxical pair, O'Connor defies the scrutiny of being seen as a quote-unquote Christian 
and as a quote-unquote writer, let alone a quote Christian writer. In way too many places today, that moniker of a Christian writer smacks of overt sentimentality in stories of times gone by, infused rather clumsily with some lightly sprinkled moralism disguised as pseudo-theological depth and sold in only certain bookstores or endorsed by certain people to to produce a Hallmark-esque warm and fuzzy Christian feeling cultivated for and sold to the masses. O'Connor herself would have been repelled by this easy hope of Christianity that meant one should feel good, secure, and superior, and reject the sugary slice of inspirational pie, as she called it, that others served up. While they sought to falsify the stumbling blocks in the path of faith and trivialize the pain of drawing close to God, and she would reject these facile assurances. The impulse of this conservative Christian soul culture has been and continues to strive to serve as gatekeepers for the right kind of books without anything more concrete defining what counts as a good Christian book or even a good Christian writer. To suffice it to say that regardless of the precise definition, O'Connor would not make the cut in these limited understandings. Though infused with courage, integrity, hope, and an ability to make the life of faith seem not only reasonable and attractive, but ultimately necessary, O'Connor would be and continues to be seen by some as not conservative nor properly religious enough. From the other side of the cultural continuum, the literary intelligentsia, O'Connor has been seen as too religious for those intellectuals who single-handedly dismiss anything from the realm of religion as worthwhile. In way too many cases, her genius was and continues to be overlooked or her faith dismissed as a quaint, colloquial party trick for stylistic effect as opposed to a necessity for the authenticity of her writing. One can no more disentangle Christianity from O'Connor's writing than take it from the southern setting in which it resides. But the theological framework she builds upon is too religious for some, and not the right kind of religious or intellectual for others. As many quality yet misunderstood and underappreciated artists who speak of spiritual matters, O'Connor occupies the paradoxical middle space of both and that invites and not the more conventional either or that excludes. She is, in a word, impossible to pigeonhole. And from this radically inclusive notion of the theological foundation of her works, O'Connor explains, all my stories are about the action of grace on a character who is not very willing to support it. Her action of grace does not fit neatly into the pleasant Christian stories that one might assume. But isn't that the the essence of grace itself? Doesn't God seek to extend God's grace in places and to people that don't make logical sense to some? O'Connor's spirituality, as seen in her works, exists along a continuum of resistance and acceptance. On one side, she views human nature vigorously resist grace because grace changes us, and that change is painful. And on the opposite pole of recognizing the importance of accepting grace through fighting against the nihilism of the age and accepting the mystery of faith and the necessity of grace for all. 
This in-depth resistance to and acceptance of grace permeates her writing. In addition, the action of grace shows up in many unlikely places for the most unlikely and even in some ways repugnant characters. And maybe this is why so many certain types of Christian and intellectuals and those good country people do not have the stomach for O'Connor. Maybe it's not that her stories are too violent or even grotesque or unpolite. It is that the grace that they describe is so very radical. Before delving in too deeply to the culminating notion of grace, we should step back and examine how the concept of sin, the paradoxical complement to grace, works in O'Connor's writing overall and specifically within her story, Good Country People. The theologian Carl Rayner, in his chapter entitled The Essence of Sin, of his spiritual exercises, posits, sin is not just a dialectical opposite of grace. It is not a trick of God's love. Christian existence is not a dialectical unity of sin and grace. Rather, it is a road of decision from darkness to light, according to which the situation of each of us must be judged. And with all deference to Rayner, the juxtaposition of a dichotomy of sin and grace misses the point of each. The paradoxical relationship between sin and grace more justly describes how O'Connor uses these concepts in her writing. If sin at its basis is the separation of humanity from God, but yet God in a philosophical sense exists in all places, then sin in need of redemption is at once already atoned for in the person and work of Christ, but also is not yet fully realized by the individual. And grace, as O'Connor conceives of it, is not a static idea or concept, but an action. The action of grace is always seeking to bring about the reconciliation of a sinner to God. This radical notion of an ever-present and reckless grace paradoxically circumvents the philosophical dialectic that Rayner and others use in a most genius way. Utilizing her Catholic faith and worldview, O'Connor reveals the paradoxical nature of sacramentality in seeing God in and through all things working to bring about God's redemptive action of grace in all people. As Father Richard McBrien stated in his, his prolific work on Catholicism after Vatican II, the Catholic vision sees God in and through all things, other people, communities, movements, events, places, objects, the world at large, the whole cosmos. The visible, the tangible, the finite, the historical. All of these are actual or potential carriers of the divine presence. This all-encompassing notion of God working in and through all people, even the most grotesque figures, to bring about the action of grace for others, reverberates through and is central to O'Connor's writing. Of all of her works, and especially among her short stories, Good Country People, which many believe to be her greatest story ever, and I tend to agree, stands above the rest in terms of its mature and complicated conception of O'Connor's view of sin and grace. By her own admission, O'Connor felt that Good Country People was, quote, the best thing I've ever written, unquote, and it pleases me no end. Though usually a painstaking process of writing and revising for O'Connor, she completed Good Country People in only about four days of sitting and writing, 
and was one of the shortest time periods in which she had written anything at all in her entire career. Even petitioning her editor for its inclusion at the 11th hour, right before publication, into the short story collection, A Good Man is Hard to Find, where is most found today, which was originally published in 1955. Good Country People quintessentially encapsulates O'Connor's wit and wisdom, not to mention some of her deepest engagement with the theological concepts of sin and grace. For those of you who have uh, not yet had the pleasure of reading Good Country People, it tells a unique tale of a complicated young woman named Holga, or as her mother, Mrs. Hopewell, continues to persistently call her Joy, her birth name. Now, Hubble is an extremely idiosyncratic and paradoxical character, as many of O'Connor's most notable ones are. Yet she, at the same time, remains both outlandish and also completely believable as someone who would and probably does exist in this crazy world in which we reside. On a side note, O'Connor's style has been described as a realistic allegory or an allegorical realism a paradox of styles that suits both O'Connor and, in this story, the character of Holga, formerly known as Joy, quite well. Beyond her complicated name and even more complicated relationship with her mother, Holga has a complicated past full of disappointment and trauma. Holga not only has a serious heart condition, described by Mrs. Hopewell as a weak heart, but also an artificial leg from a childhood hunting accident when she was 10. Both of these debilitating physical maladies stand in symbolically for the deeper psychological and spiritual wounds that Holga bears. In addition to not fitting into the stereotypical female role of the time as a wife and potential mother, Holga has focused her brilliance into taking a PhD in philosophy, which irks her mother mostly because she does not know how to brag that her daughter is a philosopher to her friends, as you might for someone that's a teacher or a nurse. Holga knows she is smarter than most people and even brags that as she looked at all the nice men around, she could just smell their stupidity. Into this world enters the sweet, young Bible salesman, Manly Pointer, who bores Mrs. Hopewell with his sales pitch of her needing a family table uh, Bible. And just about as she's trying to get rid of him, her patience and hospitality wearing quickly thin, he mentions that he didn't go to college and he sells Bibles because he has a heart condition and is not long for this world. And instantly she thinks he and Joy have the same condition. Due to all of her talk about how her friend's daughters have been fixed up and married and pregnant, we can assume she is trying to at least help Holga connect with someone, if not maybe eventually get married and start a family. Holga, on the other hand, in her arrogance, has more sinister intentions for Mr. Pointer. As O'Connor states, during the night, she, that is Holga, had imagined that she would seduce him, that is Manly, Manly Pointer, the innocent Bible salesman. Hell-bent on corrupting this impressionable young man, Holga agrees to a date, but things are not what they seem, as typical of O'Connor. 
as she lures him into a barn loft to complete her seduction and to take his innocence. The tables turn, and Manly is revealed to not be what he has presented. His Bibles are just empty shells in which he keeps alcohol, condoms, and pornographic playing cards. And when Holga rejects this corrupt person, he steals her artificial leg, leaving her hurt and vulnerable, alone up in the barn loft, taking off into the distance, collecting another prize from yet another victim. Reality smashes in to Holga's false perceptions. A cautionary tale about the dangers of first impressions? Maybe. But looking deeper, we can see the theological lesson O'Connor wishes for us to derive more fully. Beginning with the title, Good Country People, O'Connor sets up a societal expectations for those who, by no, by no means, are sinners and in no means need of grace or charity or help. The sort of pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstrap sort of crowd. As Mrs. Hopewell, the opening focal point of this frame story, states regarding why she likes certain people, quote, they were not trash, they were good country people. As the story continues, this phrase is used as a sort of shorthand for not being those kind of people, but being the salt of the earth, as the expression goes. But for Holga, she wishes nothing else than not only to, be, to not be identified that way, but to actively persecute those good country people. In answering to Manly Pointer's question about her lack of a conversion experience, Holga says, in my economy, I'm saved and you are damned, but I told you that I didn't believe in God. And later in reaction to his, his persistent asking if she loves him, she replies, I don't have illusions. I'm one of those people who sees through to nothing. We are all damned, but some of us have taken off our blindfolds and see that there's nothing to see. It's really a kind of salvation. This false salvation that Holga strives for sees past, or as she says it, through and chooses not to see the something present, but instead to acknowledge it as merely nothingness. But as Holga's vision of the world is challenged in the deceptive manly pointer, and she asks pleadingly after his true identity is revealed, but aren't you just good country people? He replies, yeah, but it ain't held me back none. I'm good as you any day of the week. And thus the breakdown of reality to live up to this unrealistic goal of goodness comes crashing down for Holga. And Holga, despite all of her supposed rejections, sees that the concept of good country people is merely a fabrication and a structure of sin, creating unrealistic and unhealthy expectations, as well as a barrier to certain kinds of unwelcomed and uninvited people. So sin, as a falling short of God's ideal to love others, reverberates through this story, from Mrs. Hopewell's treatment of Holga, to Holga's treatment and planned stealing of Manly Pointer's innocence, to even the unexpected re reversal of fortune in Manly Pointer's actually taking advantage of Holga. 
All of these ways in which people sought to objectify and control others shows the fallenness of the world and the sinfulness of all the characters. But what of grace? Where is the action of grace that O'Connor is so known for? Instead of a picture-perfect, Hollywood, Disney-ified ending, we are left with a broken and traumatized Holga and the final words of Manly Pointer to her. You ain't so smart. I've been believing in nothing ever since I was born. And he escapes over the horizon. But the action of grace comes from this unlikely and despicable source, the con artist and serial abuser of Manly Pointer. As O'Connor explains about her writing, this grace as working through nature, but is entirely transcending it, so that a door is always open to the possibility and the unexpected in every human soul. The reality of the action of grace is not found in an unrealistic epiphany written into the story as a deus ex machina to save the day, but in the realistic and relatable opportunity of Holga to change due to this moment of realization and reflection. Just as in real life, God is working behind the scenes in the hearts and minds of people to bring about the possibility of change. The door is always open. The possibility is always there, even for the most ardent atheist, like Holga, and rejectors of this grace. Grace still finds a way. Even what Manly Pointer meant for evil, God is transforming for good in the life, and in especially the future, of Holga. And as O'Connor mentions in a letter describing Holga, and pushing back on the idea that she is the villain of the story in certain regards, O'Connor says she is just like us all. Too distracted by her own judgments and accomplishments to see God working. And maybe, just maybe, the action of grace will transform Holga into a truly changed individual and not simply one of those good country people. Thanks. <laughs>